On today's show, we are talking with John Tamney. John Tamney is the Vice President at FreedomWorks and Director of its Center of Economic Freedom. He's the editor of Real Clear Markets, a very cool website that I've been checking out lately, and Senior Economic Advisor to the mutual fund firm Applied Finance Group. Now, John has written a number of books, and today we'll be looking at his, uh, his latest one, which I think is really cool, called When Politicians Panicked, The New Coronavirus Virus Expert Opinion and a Tragic Lapse of Reason. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Matt, thank you so much for having me on. It's a, it's, I'm flattered to be asked and look forward to having a wide-ranging discussion. Well, John, wide-ranging indeed, because I've looked at your work on Forbes and on uh, realclearmarkets.com, which people should check out. You, you caught my attention when you read an article called There's No Supply Chain Shortage or Inflation, There's Just Central Planning. So I, I remember about uh, six months ago, I started to talk about inflation. I just noticed people were saying, hey, we're seeing a lot of inflation and, and especially hidden inflation in some of our asset, um, asset classes, especially here in Australia, where our basket of goods aren't necessarily inflating like they are in the US, but certainly our asset prices are. So can we start with this article though? You said what we're witnessing is not inflation, uh, which the mainstream media is just starting to now kind of say it's what something else and, and if it is something else john will it then go away once we fix those issues yeah, it's a great question uh and i think probably the best way to start is to start with how i began that column uh, mm. if you read uh, the early pages of adam smith's wealth of nations he talks about entering a pin factory back in the 18th century mm. and what he found is that one person working alone in the factory could maybe maybe produce one pin per day, but several workers working together could produce tens of thousands. And it's just a reminder of how exponentially more productive is work done when work is divided up among specialized individuals. And so this is an unsophisticated pin factory. Imagine the division of labor required to make airplanes or cars or computers. And so consider this in terms of what happened beginning in March, roughly March of 2020. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, some of the most advanced countries in the world shut down major parts of their economies. I mean, suddenly jobs vanished overnight. Well, in doing this, we eviscerated supply chains and, and working arrangements and contractual arrangements that had been created over years and decades, billions of workers entering into trillions of different economic arrangements. Is any surprise that with this, with this cessation of this global, globally connected economic engine, that there would be some supply difficulties right now, but don't call that inflation. That's not inflation. Uh, they just imposed command and control where it hadn't been before. So you're saying that then the prices inflating everywhere are a result of just stifling the natural um, efficiencies of markets. It's not, we're not seeing a devaluing of our, our dollar. No. Yeah, ex exactly that. Inflation is a, de is a devaluation of the unit of account. And, and, and I acknowledge in the column, if you look at the dollar over the past 20 years, it's declined a lot. I mean, I, I look back at the be beginning of the 20th century a dollar bought roughly two Aussie dollars. Uh, that changed a lot in this, in this century. 
uh, we began devaluing under President George W. Bush. And, and I've been on record as decrying this devaluation that began long ago. But we haven't seen a major devaluation in the past year or two. Okay. What this is, is this is just a supply phenomenon of, uh, you know, you sideline workers around the world. Uh, you're going to eventually run into supply bottlenecks. And so, but what's got to be stressed is that supply and demand can't cause inflation. Inflation is devaluation of the currency. And then that's not what's, that's not the issue right now. Okay. So in the U.S., you're... Uh, are you seeing what I'm seeing in the news? The you know just your your bread and your timber and your um, gas prices—they're all going through the roof. Yes, we we are seeing the same thing. To go into a grocery store is to be a little bit surprised right now. Uh, certainly, I've heard the stories for people trying to remodel houses right now or build them that wood prices have gone way up. Mm. Uh, yes, yeah, so there, there's no doubt we're seeing that, but that's not. Again, I think to find inflation, you have to look at currency policy and, and policy of devaluation. That's not what's happening right now. It's just there's suddenly all, people have been sidelined for quite some time. Suddenly they're wanting lots of things. It strikes me that for once the Fed is correct and central bankers are correct, this is transitory. Transitory. Okay. So w w when is it? <laughs> I don't know if I can ask when is it, when is it going to end? What would it need to happen for it to, to end? And how quickly would well, it restore? Well, it's so it's it's a great question. It's so funny to ask it uh, because politicians think that oh, we can just end this. Mm. Well, wouldn't life be so easy? But let's let's again remind everyone that a supply chain isn't some tangible thing that you can look at and touch. Mm. It is a creation of years of painstaking arrangements entered into by workers around the world, dividing up work, and so. You can't just eviscerate that. You can't just kind of tear it down with a light or heavy-handed form of command and control and expect to just turn it right back on like that. President Biden acts like, oh, yeah, prices will be down soon. We're, who knows? Because what took years and years to create and then was broken down isn't necessarily going to come back into operation right away. And so we just, you know, capitalism is amazing for its ability the ability of producers to get to work moving quickly again but this could take some time so are you are you hinting that or maybe not hinting are you saying that the um there's a there's an attack on on the free market over there a centralized command and control moment emerging in in the united states um, not yet, yeah, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Uh, I'm not in Australia, but I'm, I think, somewhat familiar with the news reports is that historically a very free people have been locked down fairly substantially there. Uh, Australia is hardly a nothing country when it comes to economic growth. It's wildly productive. And so you're seeing free people around the world, not just in the U.S., but around the world, suddenly not as free in their ability to work, produce, to operate businesses. There's all sorts of barriers being put up. And so it cannot be stressed enough that we are harmed in the United States when Australia is less productive. That hurts our economy. Really? It wow. certainly hurts our economy when the Chinese people are less free. We were a poorer nation when China was incredibly poor. And certainly the world is much poorer when the U.S. is like less economically productive. Let's never forget that so much of 
quote, demand or consumption around the world as a consequence of economic activity that happens in the U.S. Just to offer up one quick example, during the lockdowns in the U.S., uh, suddenly white flags were going up on huts in El Salvador. And what were these? These white flags were people in this country putting a sign up saying starvation is happening in this house, in this hut. And why was that? Well, so much of the demand for food in El Salvador is people, El Salvadoran immigrants living in the United States, working and sending money back to the to relatives in that country. Of course, they're out of work. Suddenly, Indian immigrants weren't sending as much back to India from the United States to Philippines from the United States. And so when we took a break from reality in the U.S., the economic impact for the world's poorest was nothing short of tragic. So what what do you make of the arguments then? You've got I mean, what is what is Joe Biden and, and whoever it really is the president behind him? What are their arguments to explain what's going on? And, and what do you make of that? And what do you make of the argument that this is inflation under Joe Biden? Like what? Why are people making these arguments? Um, I think the people making the inflation argument are just engaging in partisanship. Right. They see the higher prices and, okay, oh, it's stagflation. This is the Jimmy Carter era all over again. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'm not saying this is a Joe Biden fan. It has nothing to do with that. But yeah. I think that our side or my side has to be honest. Uh, the devaluation of the dollar began long before Joe Biden. Um, it began under George W. Bush. And so to pretend that suddenly oil prices are high, well, wait a second, in 1998, uh, before we devalued the dollar, a barrel of oil cost $10. Uh, now, it's, and it rose all the way to 150 under George W. Bush. Where were all these people talking about inflation then? Because there was a major devaluation during those years. And so I think a lot of this inflation talk is partisan, but it's also just I think a lot of people are confused when it comes to basic economics. Uh, Mm. Supply and demand aren't the drivers of inflation. Devaluation is inflation. Supply and demand can be a lot of things. Just to offer an example, let's say they discover tomorrow that Honeycrisp apples, if you eat one a day, uh, will stave off cancer and heart disease. Well, rest assured, demand for those will go through the roof and and it will outstrip supply. Is that inflation? No, that's just increased demand for a market good. If we're paying more for Honeycrisp apples, we have less money to pay for other goods. Uh, uh, A rising price implies a falling price somewhere else. Inflation is a decline in the unit altogether, such that prices across the board rise. Okay. So what would inflation look like in the US? Like what you're saying, prices of everything should be going up. And what would what would cause that? I mean, is, isn't he doing that? Isn't he printing, you know, trillions or billions of dollars? Uh, isn't that enough to drive some kind of increased inflation over the past two years? Um, well, for one, the Fed isn't printing money per se. What it's doing is banks keep reserves at, at, at the Federal Reserve. And so it's buying bonds. And this isn't me defending the Fed. I've written a book about how the Fed's existence is wholly superfluous, but um, I wouldn't say that's inflationary. The Fed doesn't control the value of the dollar. Historically, presidents have gotten the dollar they wanted, 
and maybe I'm getting too much in the weeds, but for instance, when we left the gold standard in 1971, which just mm-hmm. was just a, which was just a way of us having a stable dollar, uh, that was President Nixon's decision. Fed Chairman Arthur Burns begged Nixon not to do that. Uh, it didn't matter. The Fed had no control over it, and so. My argument's always been that that uh, inflation is as old as money is. As long as governments have been issuing currencies, they've been fiddling with their value. And so we're seeing that right now. I don't think Joe Biden really understands what inflation is. I don't think it's registered with him what it is. Um, and, and so, you know, it's not like you're going to get a reasonable argument from the other side, but historically, Uh, inflation was a devaluation of the currency. And presidents have generally gotten that on their own. So so what is Joe Biden's uh, explanation now, publicly at least, for what's going on? He's not buying the inflation narrative from the Republican side. In in Biden's case, he's saying something that's that's reasonably true in that, hey, people are just getting back. My my read on is that people are getting back to their lives. uh, they're, They're buying things again. And demand is outstrips supply. Um, that's true in a sense, as I've argued. I, I think there's some truth to that. Uh, Biden's mistake is in pretending that he can make this go away. Well, no. Uh, free markets can make it go away. And President Biden seemed, doesn't seem to be very interested in free markets. He keeps wanting to impose different um, mandate here, mandate there. Uh, if you want to get back to lower prices, uh, let people be free again to operate their businesses as they choose to. Mm. It, it does scare me, though, when you say, you know, it's not going to switch back on immediately. It's taken decades to get here, so it might take a year or two or whatever to reestablish these relationships, these um, cooperative relationships. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very sad because, again, you think of what a sophisticated global economy we are, mm. and we because people around the world had more and more been able to specialize in a certain area and produce in narrow, specialized fashion. And then in 2020, they suddenly saw their ability to produce taken from them. And we had in the U.S. businesses threatened, if you operate, we'll cut off electricity to you. Uh, You think that's going to have some supply impacts later once people are free to consume again. Well, yeah. And, and, and ask yourself the question. Let's just use one example. I don't know if, if the same thing happened in Australia, but Hertz, uh, the rental car agency in the U.S., all of a sudden lockdowns happened in March of 2020. It's got all these cars on its books, mm. uh, cars around the world that no one's renting. And so it does a fire sale of cars because the cars would just sit there and it goes into bankruptcy. Well, so suddenly car rental is expensive in the U.S. Well, you think and you think that maybe Hertz is a little bit skeptical about adding back the inventory that it had before, knowing full well that President Biden or some governor in in the U.S. could say, oh, we're locking down again. And so there's reluctance among businesses. It's not just supply chain. There's reluctance among businesses to add back inventory. Why would you, knowing how quickly government can basically uh, put your finances upside down by saying you can't operate again. Suddenly you've got all this inventory. And so I'm sure it's somewhat similar in Australia too. There is some reticence on the part of businesses to get back to where they were from the supply perspective because they don't know what government's going to do. Okay. So what do you make then of the bigger asset classes like uh, property? I don't know what's happening in the US, but certainly here we've seen 20% 
year year on year rises. It's just insane. Uh, and people are calling it inflation here in Australia because it doesn't make sense anymore. We've got homes that should be $900,000 Australian dollars. And, and now across the road from me in the suburbs of Melbourne, Australia, uh, 2.5 million. And some of the economists I've been speaking to are saying it's because there's so much government money in the system right now that have gone into the pockets of the already wealthy because of the various programs that we've had. Uh, and they've got the same profits, minimal downturn in their stores, but they're not paying staff. They're getting all these government handouts. They don't know where to park their money. So it's all rushing into property prices. What am I seeing? Am I seeing inflation or, or is that again, just a over, over demand for fixed basket of goods? Oh, it is such a good question. Uh, if you look back to the early part of the 21st century, uh, there was obviously a housing boom in the United States, but there was also one in Australia. There, housing boomed around the world. Uh, that was a stretch of time in which the U.S. devalued the dollar, and when we devalue, it tends to be global in scope, and that currencies to varying degrees follow um, our move. Um, look, there's no denying that, and I don't want to get turn viewers off too much, but if you measure currencies in terms of gold over the last 20 years, there's been a big decline in their value. And so what do people do when money's losing value over time? Housing becomes a safe haven. It's a place to protect your wealth that's being devalued and furthermore, you can live in it. So my sense is that's at work. Uh, let's remember also that we have seen politicians once again very rapidly take away the freedom of businesses to operate. And so there's probably, in a relative sense, reluctance about putting capital to work, where, uh, whereas with housing, it's a safe haven. And so my guess is that's at work. One of the arguments made here in the United States, of course, is that uh, the lockdowns made people rethink their interest in living in cities, uh, yeah. tech, close in cities. So there's maybe a supply demand shortfall here, whereby the desire for the suburbs is demand outstrips supply. Um, it strikes me that that's reasonable. Uh, I will say this, I'm concerned as it sounds like you are, when there's a big rush into housing, that's usually a negative economic signal because housing's not investment. Mm. A house, your purchase of a house doesn't, make you more productive. It doesn't open up foreign markets, won't lead to a cancer cure, won't lead to the creation of a new software. House consumption of wealth that already exists. Whereas when you and I put our wealth into a venture capital fund or into a, 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 an index fund, we are directing our savings toward wealth that doesn't yet exist, toward the creation of new ideas. And so we're, if, you, if you asked me one of the things that worries me the most, other than the lockdowns right now, is that housing is doing so well around the world. It is a sign that people are choosing a lot more consumption over the savings and investment that truly drive progress. Wow. Okay. So with your with with people fleeing to houses, we're seeing a decrease in productivity, you say, and creative creation. Then mm -hmm. What can we, how real can I, th so those prices are real, w regardless of what's driving them, 
people are starting to look at house prices in Australia. Oh, oh that's a bubble. It's all going to crash. It's unsustainable. But from what we're talking about, they, it sounds very real and they could stay like that for a long time. Yeah, I, I think all prices are real. Right. Uh, prices are a signal. They're a signal of where investment is flowing. And so it wouldn't surprise me for them to stay there like that. And let's, let's never forget that there's this assumption to this day that in 2008, home prices just collapsed around the world and, you know, mm. mortgages exploded. Oh, please. You know, the reality is that most mortgages entered into in the United States performed. Over 90% of them did. Mm. The thing is, is banks can't have too many failed loans. Mm. Uh, the rush into housing in the 2000s was a signal that banks were rushing away from risk, not toward it. With housing, when you lend loan to a house, you can claw back mo- much of what you loan to, as in there's a house to get back if the people stop paying it. Compare that to if you loan to a business. Hmm. The business fails, what do you claw back? There's nothing, nothing. to get. The, the, the business is people. Hmm. Housing is a rush away from risk. Again, that's why I get so worried when people say, oh, the, the housing boom, this is going to be great for the economy. No, 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 no. It's a movement of precious capital away from creative new ventures. But see, it's the leap into new ventures that drives progress, not the purchase of houses. Look, we all want to consume things. Investment is a consequence. True investment is into new ideas, into wealth that doesn't yet exist. Housing is just a purchase of wealth that already exists. It's a low-risk way of parking wealth. Okay, so if 2008 was GFC was driven by this flight into housing and then the issues there, they had a lot of defaults. How I know this is a huge question, but are, are we setting up a similar trajectory now with a similar flight to houses now? And, and are we going to see in the next couple of years something like the GFC or similar problems? It's a, it's a great question. Um, and Here's why it's impossible to answer. And I will answer it by saying there are a lot of pundit types who claim they predicted 2008. Neil Ferguson is an example. And I've always written rebuttals to these people. In my first book, Popular Economics, one of my chapters is if you say you predicted the financial crisis, you're lying. And then Neil Ferguson said he predicted 2008, which I know not. You could only predict 2008 if you predicted all the government intervention that caused the, that caused the financial meltdown. Right. It's correct all the time. Banks fail. Uh, investments go south. That's just a sign of economic progress. Not just progress, but that's just, that's just the way things work in a free economy. People make mistakes. What caused 2008 wasn't that some mortgages started to go south or that some banks were going to fail. What caused it was that government intervened and tried to protect the banks from their failures and created all sorts of uncertainty. Uh, How could it help a financial market to prop up what financial markets have rejected? And so the bailouts were the crisis. Intervention by its very name is the crisis because you're substituting the limited knowledge of politicians for the broad knowledge of the marketplace. And so you look at this right now, it's hard not to be a little bit bearish in a small sense about the future, that there's all this precious capital going into the consumption of housing. But that alone couldn't cause a global meltdown. 
It's how government intervenes in it that causes the problem, and, and for obvious reasons. When a market is correcting, that's a sign of health. It's the market's way of saying, okay, some mistakes were made, and so we are correcting the mistakes. That is a sign of future growth because you're fixing, you're reversing the incorrect allocation of precious capital. Mm -hmm. It can never be a crisis. What can be a crisis is when politicians step in and say, we don't, George W. Bush famously said, I'm a big free market guy, but um, markets aren't working right now. Well, markets don't, they just are. There's no opinion to them. They're not ideological. They didn't hate Bush. They don't like Obama or what. Markets just, they produce prices. And so Bush was the crisis by intervening. And so the fear is if there's a downturn again, governments will intervene. That will be the crisis. The downturn itself could never be problematic. Yeah, but see what you've just taught me, which is this highlight of the interview so far for me, the idea that markets correcting is a very healthy sign. The population in our Western world country, well, probably everywhere, don't see that. The, the politicians respond to a population saying, oh, no, house prices are going back by 15% all of a sudden. Uh, fix it, fix it, fix it. And so we have more intervention coming, I would say. We're, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this in the second half of the interview with COVID. But your government, my government, they're all just going to intervene, right? So we can probably put money, put our bets on the fact that the government will screw around with our markets again. Uh, as they fail, uh, and we're going to see some kind of GFC-type problem. I, I, look, I think you're right. I think history says that they're going to try to do it again, and that's unfortunate because you, you make the obvious point. You say, oh, houses down 15%. Fix it, fix it, fix it. Correct. Save us from this. Mm. But see, a lot of people, that's mana from heaven. Mm. Oh, I get to get back in. I get. To, I, I missed the rally before. I get much more house at a lower price, which is my point. Economies gain strength and people gain strength from periods of weakness because suddenly people are able to acquire different things at lower prices. Uh, If Citigroup in the U.S. had failed in 2008, it wasn't going to disappear. GM wasn't going, the, the car company wasn't going to disappear. Someone was going to buy it. They're just going to be able to buy it at a discount which is where your economic rebound exists, that suddenly people get some really interesting assets on the cheap. But see, we don't allow that to happen as readily anymore. And so we limit the upside. You, in, economies gain essential strength and stock markets gain ex- essential strength from periods of weakness. Uh, just to give you one more example, what were the most valuable US companies and most important US companies when the 21st century began? Okay, well, so GE was the most valuable company in the world, $585 billion. Uh, the next GE at the time was Tyco. That's everyone thought this was the best managed company. Enron had the smartest people in the world. It was one of the best managed American companies. What were the two top internet companies in the year 2000? Yahoo and AOL. Right. You heard of those companies lately. Huh. So you think about the danger if politicians could prop up the past or prop up the present. Oh, wow, would we be in desperate shape? Because you would have what markets long ago put out to pasture still hogging and consuming precious resources. 
the U.S. is the richest country in the world precisely because bad ideas are routinely allowed to fail and businesses that aren't meeting the needs of the marketplace are allowed to be pushed aside. Well, so if we suddenly move away from this, if it becomes the norm to prop up the past, stagnation relative to what we could be doing will be the result. It will be true in the U.S., be true in Australia, true in Europe, because you, by definition, in propping up the present, you're, you're keeping down the replacements for the present, which by, by definition are much, much greater. Yes, I am feeling um, Schumpeter's creative destruction rushing back to me. That's what we need. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> People haven't read Schumpeter's, S-C-H-U-M-P, Schumpeter's uh, creative destruction. Have a look at that. All right. So we've been talking about I, I, the, the whole idea of this interview is I really wanted to get behind, get into the idea of where the, the world is going, what countries are doing well, how we can get better. And I think the best way to look at this is probably through the lens of your latest book. So why don't we talk about that for a little bit? Uh, I haven't read it yet, so maybe you could take me through it. When politicians panicked, the new coronavirus, expert opinion, and a tragic lapse of reason. Certainly, there's been a lapse of reason. What is this book about, John? It is an economics book. Uh, lots of thousands of books we've written about the health idea behind the coronavirus. Yeah. Mine is an economics book. It makes a case that, a tragic case that they used as their virus mitigation strategy, politicians in the U.S. and realistically around the world, they used economic contraction as their solution to a spreading virus, which is unprecedented. And it's unprecedented because economic growth has always been the biggest enemy that death and disease have ever known. And poverty, by its very name, is the biggest killer mankind has ever known. Politicians quite literally chose poverty in 2020, and historians will marvel at their abject stupidity in choosing to impoverish people, destroy jobs and businesses as a way of fighting the spread of a virus. Could we be fair to, the, to them for a second? Well, I think, I think to be fair to them, that, that, that's a collateral decision, right? That wasn't their intention. Their, their intention was this scary virus is going to kill us all. And we need to just isolate and shut things down. And if the economy suffers, so be it, because this is a common phrase in Australia, lives, lives are more important than money. We can't excuse them for that because look at what life was like before money. Look at how short life was. In the United States in the 19th century, if you broke your femur, you had one in three chances of death. But if you lived, your only solution was amputation. And to be clear, this much poorer United States, painkillers when your leg was being chopped off weren't nearly as advanced as they are today. If you broke your hip in the 19th century, you died. When you were born in the much more impoverished 19th century, you had as good of a chance of dying as you did living. Uh, if you got cancer in the 19th century, you were going to die. But let's be clear, you were lucky to die of cancer because pneumonia and tuberculosis and other diseases for which they had no cures got you long before cancer could ever hope to have it shot at you. Mm -hmm. uh, World War I was the first war in history 
in which more men died from gunshots and bombs than they did from typical diseases that ravaged people all the time. And so the question is, what changed? Well, what changed was economic growth. John D. Rockefeller is arguably the richest American who ever lived, made lots of money, and in his lifetime alone, he gave away $530 million. $450 million of it went to medical research. This research matched doctors and scientists with resources so that they could come up with the cures for that which used to kill us. We live longer today, and we live healthier, and we live exponentially better lives precisely because of the creation of wealth. And so for Australians or anyone to say it's not about money, it's about lives, they have got it completely backwards. If you love life, you must love wealth creation. Hmm. Okay. So do you think it was negligence or willful destruction on the on the part of the decision makers here? Great question. I think it was the law of good intentions always going bad. I think they were saving us. That they were hopelessly wrong doesn't excuse it. And to be clear, we knew from China the virus was real, but we also knew from China that the virus wasn't a major killer. And how we knew this is that the most valuable companies in the world, that would be U.S. companies, get enormous amounts of their sales from China. Apple's the most valuable company in the world. It sells one-fifth of its iPhones in China. McDonald's, second largest market is China. Nike's second largest market is China. There's 4,200 Starbucks in China on the way to 7,000, on the way to tens of thousands. My point here is that if the virus, which originated in China, had been killing its people in indiscriminate fashion, we would have seen U.S. stock markets correcting long before March of 2020 to reflect the loss of the biggest market non-U.S. for U.S. companies in the world. Yet U.S. shares were hitting all-time highs during this. So again, we knew from China the virus wasn't a major killer, but let's assume it was. Let's assume it had killed tens of millions of Chinese. What's the point of locking down? Because see, if Americans knew that staying home was the only way to protect themselves from dying. They didn't need a politician to force them to do this. They were going to lock down on their own. The more threatening a virus is, the more superfluous is political force. So there was never, ever any justification for the taking of freedom. It's ran counter to the economic growth that has always been the biggest enemy of death and disease. But very crucially, free people produce information when you need it most, in this case, politicians chose to blind free people to what the actions of free people would do and what and what they would teach us about a spreading virus. Yes, I do find it incredible that uh, in a real, or I hesitate to say in a real pandemic, because so many people have died, but in, in a usual pandemic, governments are at pains to calm their population and encourage markets and growth to continue because that's so vital but now they're selling to us like a used car salesman why we should all be so afraid what's happening in the u.s on, on this front are, are people um are people seeing the way you're seeing it or are they just swallowing the the propaganda um i think it's a good question i think they initially swallowed the propaganda, which supports my point. 
Now, I would prefer government, in my perfect world, government would not be the one putting its thumb on the scale. I think it's because government doesn't pay for its mistakes. Mm. Anthony Fauci was wrong 40 years ago about AIDS. He was incredibly wrong about AIDS, uh, but he doesn't pay for it in the marketplace. And so I'd rather private businesses make their own decisions. Hey, there's a virus spreading, uh, maybe take some precautions. Uh, let, 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 let private people work this out. But I think initially Americans were very scared, which is, again, is the point. Precisely because they were scared, uh, masks were selling out. Uh, hand sanitizer around the world was selling out. Um, in, the, in the most right-wing states in the U.S., you know, the science-denying states here, the New York Times, a newspaper that is very critical of those states, acknowledged that those were the states in which people started adjusting to a spreading virus the soonest. They were do, they, no one needs to be forced to avoid sickness or death. And so I think at the time there was a lot of fear. And then people gradually saw that, oh, hey, wait a second, this is real, but it's not the big threat that they thought. And so I think more and more people are moving in my direction. But I must admit that I give lots of speeches to, shall we say, right of center groups. And for good or bad, I'm happy to say that when they hear my argument, they said, we've never heard this before. Hmm. Uh, the one that I'm presenting to you, this is novel. And that makes me sad that people haven't thought this through, that political force is so dangerous, but it's most dangerous when something threatens us or is said to threaten us the most. Well, I find your argument, it's like, my, it's like ice cream for my brain. It's very, um, it's very stimulating. Uh, okay, so you just said, about governments not necessarily being willfully destructive, but more so, you know, they have good intents, like that old C.S. Lewis quote about, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely expressed for the good of its own victims may be the most oppressive. Uh, why are they so motivated then, if it's just good intent, how, how can they be so motivated right now to control every part of our lives, so, so religiously zealot type, behavior from governments around the world. That's why people are coming up with these theories of, oh, it's all coordinated and whatever, because it just seems, they, they just seem so, um, so, so driven, so committed to, to saving us. Uh, do you have any insight into why governments are so dedicated to this goal? It is a great question. It's something I think about a lot. And I ask, I think what it is, is I also think that long after you and I have left this earth, historians will look back and say, this was a period of time in the world in which the world lost its collective mind. Mm. What else could explain this reaction to a spreading virus? Uh, literally causing global starvation. Uh, New York Times predicted 285 million people around the world were heading towards starvation. That was their estimate. Um, in response to these lockdowns, the hundreds of millions pushed back to poverty. Uh, they lost their minds. Now, okay, but why did they initially go in this direction? Again, I think they had good intentions. And then they locked down. And oh, wow, out of nowhere, tens of millions just in the U.S. alone are out of work. Businesses are destroyed or impaired. I think they blew it so mightily that there was no turning back to admit that, oh, wow, look at what we did would be to admit they got something wrong. So I think in a sense, they're doubling down 
because they feel there's no choice. They don't want to go the other direction and say, we didn't just blow it, but we caused a major global calamity. So they're sticking to their guns as a way of essentially papering over what they did before. That's the best I can do for you because, again, it makes zero sense. Okay. The irrationally clinging on. Okay. Well, I, I'm detecting like the from you a perspective that the people, the market, you know, the, just the natural state of things. You, you seem to hold them in a higher, uh, a higher regard than some of our politicians around the world who are seeing them as children, infants, imbeciles, animals to be looked after, shielded, fed, saved. And I'm wondering if if you're seeing a binary kind of perspective uh, when people talk about how do we respond to coronavirus, are you finding well, it's, that? It's um, such yeah. a great question and comment. Yes. Um, I put the, I hold the markets in high regard and why do I? It's not because government doesn't have experts, Yeah. but the people are the marketplace. And what is the marketplace? It is the collective wisdom of everyone. Right. It's not that Anthony Fauci isn't probably wildly smart, but his knowledge relative to 330 million Americans is microscopic. Right. It's not that the Soviet Union didn't have experts. It's not that Cuba and North Korea don't have experts now. Of course they do. But the reason markets work so well is they combine the knowledge of everyone. Whereas when experts are leading the charge, when they are dictating, when authoritarianism prevails over freedom, crisis is the obvious next step because you're substituting very narrow knowledge for the broad knowledge of humanity. And so politicians said, and Fauci said, we must overreact. We must do something. Let's be charged with overreacting or else there will be a crisis. He was making a self-fulfilling statement. The minute you suffocate freedom, the only result is crisis. And not because every single American or Australian is brilliant, but because every Australian combined with every other Australian and every American, the combined knowledge of Americans and Australians is nothing short of awe-inspiring. Yet in the past 19 months, we've suffocated it. Is it any surprise, the results? Can I, can I put their side of the argument to you then and see what you say? Just like the pin factory, which we opened the interview with, the um, fragmentation and specialization of skill sets is very important. They, the technocrats would argue that it's impossible for the average participant in the market to have sufficient specialized knowledge to make specialized decisions, in this case, health. What do you say to that? Because they would say, we need to trust and elevate some of these health experts over the market that just doesn't understand the R naught, the infectivity, the, you know, all these specialized health terms about public health crises. Uh, they've got it absolutely backwards. Of course, people are going to make bad decisions. But see, remember, John Anthony Fauci said back in 1983 that you could tr transmit AIDS just by living in the same household as someone else. The National Health Service in England, as I point out in the book, had billboards up in the 80s saying one in five Brits was going to get AIDS, for which there is no known cure. Yeah. 
precisely because knowledge doesn't age well, expert knowledge, it's essential that people act freely so you can find out the truth. Now, I know people, and I know, I think it's safe to say, you know, people that didn't need any political force. They locked down, they went into their houses yeah. when they're, and never to leave again. Oh, yeah. Guess what? You need people like that. You need to find out if that's so, if, if just by running and hiding, if the virus will go to sleep and, you know, go somewhere else. My wife had just produced a baby March 1st of 2020. Whenever I'd come into the house from outside, she'd follow me around. Have you washed your hands? Have you washed your hands? Just germaphobe. If someone walked by us, she would jump away from them. Drove me nuts. But you need people like my wife. You need to find out, is that a way to avoid getting the virus, assuming you want to avoid getting it? In my case, the excitement, best part of my day was just going to the grocery store. I couldn't wait to get out of the house. I would forget things at the grocery store just so that I could go again so I could be around people. The minute restaurants opened up, I was at them. I needed to be, I needed company. And then you've got young people. Oh, they're, they're your most important control group of all. They go, you want them going to every bar, hitting every party, making out with every girl and guy you can. And guess what? Why? By going against the grain of the experts, we find out free people produce information. Does doing what Fauci tells us not to do result in an adverse health or death situation? And people say, oh, well, we're just sending people towards suicide. No, people make bad and good decisions all the time. Cocaine and heroin are illegal in the United States, but people still use them. And from their use, we learn things. And so people were going to make bad decisions no matter what. They don't have handcuffs for every American. But when you impose one size fits all, you don't improve knowledge about how to avoid the virus. You blind people. You wanted free Americans trying all sorts of different approaches to it. Some of them utterly counter to what the experts wanted so that you could find out were the experts right because they got AIDS wrong. They got SARS wrong. They got H1N1 wrong. Maybe they don't understand the virus. And so they said, what we say is correct. Do as we say. What could be more blinding to a society than to force a solution on them? So is there is there any limit where your reasoning would have to change? So I'm thinking about the tragedy of the commons. And I'm thinking about um, situations where people say, well, it's bigger than it's now too big, like say climate change, uh, which people say, look, it's a worldwide problem, this kind of thing, or or a truly deadly pandemic like Ebola, where is, I don't know what, but hundreds of millions of people would die spreading around the world. Is there any situation where you would acquiesce to what the experts are doing? Because that's what the politicians are doing. You know, we just had a premier of New South Wales getting up and saying, freedom is not given to you by governments. You're born with it, you know, making all of these noises to be the first state in Australia to actually start treating people properly like what you've been suggesting. But then as soon as he gets in power, within one week, he's now saying, no, we can't open up and give people freedom until we hit 95% double vaccinated rate. And I'm wondering if you were now to be thrust into be the president or, or whatever, whether there would be a point where you go, you know what, Matt, everything I said into that, into that interview was great, but it's just so bad. I have to put that aside for now. Yeah, look, it's a great question. And my answer to you is that the more threatening something is, that's when freedom becomes all the more important. Mm. Because if something could kill us by the hundreds of millions, oh boy, you better believe I want decentralized decision-making to find out what's the best way to combat this. Yeah. And so 
to me, the answer is so obvious that it's not something that maybe could kill 100 people. No, it's, it's when something really threatens us with major death that we need people trying different things. I mean, look, go back to AIDS once again. They kept saying, what is the government solution? Government funding of AIDS. No, you wanted every nut job on earth, every mad scientist on earth. If AIDS was going to kill a fifth of all Brit- the Brits, yeah. you wanted every nut job coming up with every oddball solution possible yeah. from different angles to say, how do we combat this? So it's when something's really dangerous that you especially want free people producing economic growth, but also information, because if it really could kill lots of people, you need that growth so that there's resources and wealth to come up with a cure for it. So no, no, you could be right. I could, if, if thrust into office, which would never happen, but if thrust into office, maybe I would lose my nerve. But if I did, I would lose all reason because Free people, that, that's, that's a virtue, particularly when something threatens. Are there, to, to finish off this, this interview, let's talk about solutions. Are there any countries or leaders that are doing this well, uh, in your opinion? And it's, it's funny to me that you just mentioned that you would, maybe you would lose your nerve. It's like, it's the easy thing to do what they, everyone's doing around the world at the moment. And it would be the difficult thing to do it well to stand up for, for what we've been talking about. Yeah, no, it's, it's so interesting what you say. Something happens to people in politics. And, and I think I call people want to be loved. They're fearful once in office that, um, oh, wait a second. Now my decision-making, if it turns out to be incorrect, uh, could have a death toll. But I think we should be more confident in our beliefs Economic growth is the greatest enemy that death and disease have ever known. But more than that, let's just, you know, look, I'd be for freedom, even if it correlated with slower economic growth. Freedom is its own virtue. What kills authoritarian governments have killed en masse over the over time. We know this. Show me the free governments that have killed off their people. Uh, There's a virtue in leaving people alone that free people left alone will not all make the correct decisions, but precisely because some will make bad decisions, they will teach, they will illuminate others how to make the good decisions. So let's go forward confidently. Uh, You and I are right. Uh, So who, John, who has done it well? Any political leaders or um, governments that are even talking the right talk in your opinion? Oh, you know, the obvious one that will come up is some will say, well, Sweden did lock down in total. They had, it was more, at least at the time, uh, use your common sense. Hey, thumbs up to that. Um, what you, you could argue that what you and I seem to want is a bit utopian. Uh, gov- governments exist to dictate. You don't get it, government, because you want to do nothing. And so there's always going to, politicians will always do something to our detriment. We just got to limit that to the best we can. Uh, You know, you've probably heard of governors like DeSantis in Florida and the United States who were less authoritarian. Um, But, you know, even there, Florida locked down. It's not that Texas didn't lock down the United States. And so we were hardly a perfect example. I'd like to think that if President Trump had acted like President Trump, and I write about this in the book, if he had been the same old obstreperous Donald Trump Mm -hmm. and stuck to his guns, 
uh, he would have gone to states and said any governor so foolish as to lock down its people is going to have me to deal with in the in a campaign sense. Yeah. Exercise your state's rights, but I'm, you're going to pay for it politically. I think if Trump does this, I think he gives a lot of governors in the U.S. cover to not lock down. And I think also if the United States doesn't rob its people of freedom, I think we set an example for the world. Uh, call me arrogant in my love of the United States, but I do believe that that something died in people around the world, a little something when they saw the country most known for freedom, just give it up so readily. And so I'm horrified by that, that, that I can't say that we acted very well and certainly some did better, but whoa, um, the United States isn't supposed to do these kinds of things. Yes, uh, John, I cannot stress to you enough how important your example is, which is exactly why I appreciate you coming on this show for an hour with me, because we are the most locked down city in the world here in Melbourne. But you know what? The problem here is not our government. The problem here is our people, that uh, I'm in a very small, maybe 20%, but uh, maybe even a bit less. Most of us are fully on board with what's happening. And having the example coming from people like you today on the show and from the US in general, it just demonstrates to us, like you've been saying in a free market, there is another way. And in fact, your way is producing better outcomes. So thank you uh, for coming on. Let me give a plug to your website and your book. Realclearmarkets.com is a fun website I've been going to, which you write for. And Lionel Shriver, the author of The Mandibles, which is behind me on my, on my left here, brilliant book, has high praise for your book. Uh, she says you make a compelling argument for lockdowns being suicidally self destructive. So well done on getting that endorsement. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate I hope I wasn't too long winded. I love your country. I visited Sydney before and it's just yeah. breathtakingly beautiful. And I view Australians as people as Americans as an Australians aren't a race, they're people from around the world. That's the United States. Mm. I think we should be partners and brothers in the sense of fighting tyranny, because I think Australians like Americans escape tyranny. And I think that's a source of major reason why we both countries are so prosperous and never, never, never give it away. So thank you for the chance to share my ideas with the country I love, love dearly. I really do. Thank you, John. Uh, just last question. Uh, what would you, if I gave you a magic wand, how would you fix the whole world? Uh, how would I fix the whole world? Um, yep. Freedom first and foremost, just let governments around the world would protect our rights to live as we want. Uh, uh, short of hurting other people, we should be able to be free to live what we want. Once you have free people, all the other stuff falls into place. And, and, and the United States, I think, was very uniquely founded on this notion of government is what we should be skeptical about. Let's limit the power of government. Uh, it took a lot of power in 2020, and I, and I think we owe it to history to show how disastrous that was, that a spreading virus did not cause a global economic contraction. In fact, the suffocation of the, markets, the, the market that is humanity is what caused the contraction, and let's never let it happen again. I like the use of your magic wand. All right, everyone, check out the book. I will be purchasing it on Kindle at the end of this interview and reading it myself. The link is in the description below. Have a lovely evening, John. Thank you very much. Thank you.